the chain of barrier islands that skirts the coast of North Carolina from the Virginia border to Cape Lookout was once remote. Today, the Outer Banks is one of America's most popular vacation destinations, welcoming millions of visitors each year. We had the opportunity to sit down with author and Outer Banks native Clark Twitty. He chronicles the region's journey from isolation to popularity through the stories of innovators and risk takers. Join us at the table. I'm Lainey. And I'm Laura Beth. And we are Steel Magnolias. The strength of steel with the grace of a magnolia. We are here to have uplifting conversations about life in the South. And we've got plenty of room at our table. So pull up a chair. Okay. Well, we have Clark Twitty with us today. Clark grew up in Duck, North Carolina, there in the Outer Banks, and has watched much of the transformation that he actually discusses in his new book, The Outer Bank Visionaries, Building North Carolina's Oceanfront. Clark was in the U.S. Navy and is an alumnus of Virginia Military Institute, the University of Tennessee, and Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. He is now the president of Twitty & Company, a hospitality and asset management firm it was founded in 1978 along the Outer Banks. He's also served in many public, private, and nonprofit roles. So welcome to the table, Clark. Thank Lady you. Laura Beth, it is a pleasure to be here. Oh, good. <laughs> well, I first off wanted to say thank you so much for your service. And secondly, thank go you. Big Orange. Yes, go balls. <laughs> Go Vols. We had a little bit of a problem in the swamp this past weekend, but we had our opportunities and we'll be back better than ever. <laughs> I hope you're right. sure hope so. <laughs> well, first off, we have never made it to the Outer Banks. Laura Beth and I have it high up on our list of places we want to get to. Um, I actually have a photo hanging in my home that is of four horses, of the wild horses, on the beach there, and I can just tell it is such a special place. Yeah. Well, tell us about what we could expect to experience in the Outer Banks. Can you describe it to us? You know, the Outer Banks is just south of Norfolk, Hampton Roads. It's about a four and a half hour drive south from Washington, D.C., and it is famous for a natural environment that is unique in many ways in America. We probably have one of the best coasts, not just in the United States, but in the world. And we are famous for a natural environment that is family friendly. We are famous for a historic environment. And I hope we're famous for families that come make memories to include some of the best weeks and family memories of their entire life. I'm so curious. If you could look back in time, Clark, could you describe the Outer Banks in 1980 as compared to now? One word answer is sandbar. In 1903, what made the Outer Banks famous was the Wright Brothers. And that was obviously 120 some years ago. The reality is in 1980, not much had changed from when the Wright Brothers had taken flight. And to compare the Outer Banks to, for example, Charleston or Savannah, 
or Annapolis or some of those other areas on the East Coast, those cities have hundreds of years of history. The Outer Banks as a tourism destination is really only about 40 years old. Will you tell our listeners just a little bit about the different villages and towns that make up the Outer Banks? Absolutely. So when we talk about the Outer Banks, what we're really talking about is northeastern North Carolina, the stretch of barrier islands and sand dunes that run essentially from the Virginia state line down to the famous island of Ocracoke. And that's where we begin to think about the southeastern coast of North Carolina, very different than the Outer Banks. And the Outer Banks has smatterings of towns and villages all the way from the northern end, all the way down to the southern end, small towns, small communities, the population of Dare County, for example, that makes up a big chunk of the Outer Banks. It's only about 40,000 people, but in the summertime, that population grows to probably north of 600,000. So that gives you an idea of how popular it is as a destination. Whoa. And the largest landowner of Dare County, I read in your book, was? Is the federal government. Thank you. You're the one who read it. Now I know. (laughs) So I'm just kidding. I, I, I I can't be serious for more than a few minutes. Actually, the reason for that, the initial towns on the Outer Banks were built around life-saving stations. And every village had a life-saving station, or rather, every station had a village that grew around it. So the towns that we have on the Outer Banks today are direct descendants of some of that early life-saving station culture and heritage that helped protect the coast. We're famous as the Graveyard of the Atlantic that was in service to shipwrecks and things like World War I, even the Civil War, for example. I think you ladies, as a historical note, are in Franklin, Tennessee. Franklin, as a history buff, obviously was the big place of an enormous battle in the Civil War. On the Outer Banks, the first U.S. Navy invasion of an island ever was here on the Outer Banks in 1862. The Navy obviously went on to be much more famous in places like Okinawa or Iwo Jima, but that culture in the Navy started in Roanoke Island. I think about um, the the European car tag looking OBX. Now, I have literally just saw one of those here in Franklin this weekend. That was the first I had ever seen of one of those. You see them now all the time, but the first one I ever saw, I remember, was OBX. Were y'all the first to have those stickers? You know, that's an interesting story. The Outer Banks is not a zip code. And the people who came up with OBX was a private company who came up with an idea to market the Outer Banks as a larger destination. And it was the private sector that did that first. And I think there's probably a community of some other places that have some of those names. They've certainly grown more popular. But at one time, OBX was unknown in the United States. And now when you say OBX, almost across America, everybody knows what you're talking about. And the people who invented that are still here on the Outer Banks and are very much a part of our fabric. Wow. Okay, so I feel like this has been a really good setup to some of the work that you've been digging into. So obviously the Outer Banks being what it is today didn't just happen. It took some very intentional, a lot of intentionality and strategic planning for all of this development. So um, even 
beyond just thinking about the outer banks, I'm curious from your your business standpoint, what what would you say is the importance of visionaries in being a part of any development? Well, I, that's a great question, and I think you nailed it. It's that question that causes the reason to try to understand how we got to where we are today as we try to answer questions about the future. So not unlike Orlando, Disney World, not unlike Las Vegas, this destination was invented in a relatively short period of time. And I think it's essentially a combination of four things. Number one is economic policy at the federal level. Number two is a little bit of history. How did the Outer Banks become such a raw canvas? Number three is some sense of entrepreneurial risk-taking. And then number four are some dynamite elected leaders that used economic development as public policy. That was a little bit boring, but (laughs) tourism is booming. And to understand what kind of destination we want to be in the future, we have to understand how we got here. Can you tell us a little bit about the financial happenings of the 1980s that set up the boom in growth and development of the Outer Banks? Absolutely. And I think probably some of your listeners can relate to this. We get into the second half of Jimmy Carter's administration, 1979. This is shocking to think about today, but prime interest rates of 1979 were somewhere around 21.5%. And today, about 60% of folks in America who have a home mortgage have a mortgage with a rate below 4%. So what happened during that time frame was Carter appoints two people that probably end his administration. Number one, Paul Volkner. Number two, Paul Volkner probably ended his administration. He was a visionary in that he also appointed Sandra Day O'Connor to the D.C. bench. Ronald Reagan pulled that forward. The second Ronald Reagan administration, Reagan appoints Sandra Day O'Connor, but more importantly, slashes, or more importantly, rather, for our conversation, slashes interest rates and slashes taxes. In 1986, taxes are much lower from a personal income standpoint, so people have more money. Interest rates are hovering around 8 or 9%. A lot more money available to invest. So from a national perspective, that's a little bit of the background that was fueling an appetite for growth, particularly on the Outer Banks. Okay, so how much growth are we talking, like in terms of tourism and population? There's a great book by Peter Thiel, and he talks about zero to one. How do you go from zero to one? And the word entrepreneur is actually a French word. It means to build something from nothing. So when we talk about growth, we mean essentially from nothing to, in a relatively short period of time, one of the most famous vacation destinations in America. So, for example, the population of Dare County in 1986, we'll call it, hovering around 15,000, not that many people. Today, 40,000 people. But here's the kicker. Visitors in 1986 hovering around 20 to 25,000 a week. Right now, we're probably in the 700,000 a week world. And the season is much longer. The infrastructure is much bigger. So it was zero to one. Talk a little bit about the, the tourism that the Outer Banks experienced or 
maybe didn't experience as part of the 2020 pandemic? How did you guys navigate that? That is a great story, and it's one that I think we can learn from. The Outer Banks is accessible only by bridges. And in March of 2020, our local elected officials made the decision out of fear to close those bridges. There are about 3,400 counties in America. To my knowledge, Dare County is the only county in America that suspended access, not just for visitors, but for non-resident property owners as well. So that decision took our overwhelming economic driver of tourism and shut it down to zero literally overnight. So folks like me were all trying to figure out how do we go bankrupt and how do we lay off staff? And in May of 2020, our elected officials opened the bridges again. And what we saw when those bridges opened was a demand for tourism on the Outer Banks that we never could have imagined. And People came like we have never seen. A a good example of that is in the summertime, our business answers about 600 phone calls a day. In May of 2020, we were averaging three and 4,000 a day. And that trend didn't let up through 20, 21, and 22. Property values doubled literally almost overnight. And we are now enjoying a boom, a proverbial golden period of time in the tourism business. And that's good and it's bad. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like the Outer Banks delivered though, because a lot of those people that came in 2020 have now been coming back as well because they fell in love with it. Well, I think probably like a lot of places in Tennessee and a lot of places across the Southeast, the Smoky Mountain region, for example, the most competitive tourism destination in America, We had a collection of people who historically had the Outer Banks as a first choice. That's where their family always went. And now we had a collection of people who were here because it was their second choice or their third choice because Disney or the Bahamas or a European vacation weren't possible. And I think we did a really good job converting a lot of second choices to first choices, as I know a lot of mountain, lake, river destinations across the Southeast did. So, Clark, some of the challenges that you are facing are actually similar to some of the things we're facing here in Franklin, and I'm sure in many other areas that are thriving. And that is affordable housing, the balance of conservation and growth, and even the changing culture of a place due to increased growth. How is the Outer Banks handling those challenges? I think you just hit upon what is a national conversation right now to all of these places that have essentially seen almost a rediscovering by huge chunks of the American population work from home. The pandemic caused us to think so differently about travel, quality of life, working, these kinds of things in terms of our commutes. Anyway, I think broadly, A lot of places, Lake Tahoe, Hawaii, Tennessee, all over the Southeast Coast are wrestling with this. And it's a great conversation because the fear becomes that as we grow and thrive, there's a great poet quote who says, you lose what you had having not gotten what you wanted. And I think that's a question that haunts a lot of folks in these destinations because they fear that as they rightly should. We take a place that's unique and we make it so popular that we lose the very thing that made it unique. To answer your question, we have, I think, a challenge 
there's a lot of complexity to it and there's not a lot of consensus. But I think the recipe, the structure for a meaningful conversation has to recognize probably some iron triangle around housing, healthcare, and education. I always maintain that's the iron triangle that continues to make communities thrive. I think we also have to have forward-facing and strategic conversations around what kind of destination we want. We're so often conditioned to have our cause and effect be for tomorrow or for the next day. Strategic conversations are very difficult. In practice, that means this idea that zoning is destiny. And I so often think Mm -hmm. that the folks who are in charge of zoning typically are not the ones who will actually watch it emerge. At least historically, that's not been the case. Much of the Outer Banks, for example, was zoned in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And the folks who zoned it at that time are on record as saying they never could have imagined what the Outer Banks would have become. And that's true for areas like the Raleigh Research Triangle Park, which at the time it was zoned, whereas in the 1950s, and a lot of other areas in America, there is a very loud voice of people who wish we could go back in time. There is a, a very vocal community who wish this would ne- never happen. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I think practically we have to recognize that we don't go back in time, that we only go forward. And the question becomes not, is the growth we have good, but how do we manage it and maintain it moving forward? And the only way to do that, and here's the punchline, If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think if there's a one sentence summary of how to shape the destinations we want, that's it. Wow. There's your mic drop, Clark. That's right. Well, I think as we talk about it, that's what it boils down to. If you want your voice heard, show up, not necessarily only on social media, Show up in person and participate in the strategic conversations that are happening. Okay. Well, Clark, a recent business article I read about you stated that you said, of course, change is not new to the Outer Banks. And you, Clark, you grew tired of learning about the region's history from obituaries. I loved that line. I mean, it's it just encapsulates so much. So you decided to describe the changes that were occurring at North Carolina's Barrier Islands through locals' experiences, which meant you had to pick up the phone and send some emails and start digging around and interview a whole bunch of people. And you have now authored a book where you cover the journeys of various Outer Banks visionaries who took part in this transition from isolation to a thriving visitor economy. So um, the book is called Outer Banks Visionaries, Building North Carolina's Oceanfront. Congratulations on this work. It seems like it was very much necessary and is going to be a um, archive that I hope generations to come will appreciate greatly because there is there are nuggets of history through these pages and of course some great photography as well that would not have uh, come, to, come to be without you Clark so congratulations on this book it's it's really well done uh, that's very kind of you to say there are a lot of people who should get credit for that mainly the people who actually did it 
and the people who actually made history. We talk a lot about preserving history. We often don't talk about enough about the people who are making it. And this was one, my small effort at trying to do that. And I also believe very deeply that we have a responsibility to add context to our history because without that context, we are unable to really create a mental model that shows us the light of the future without that context of why did they make the decisions they made at that time? And most importantly, what can we learn from it? Mm-hmm. So do you feel like those were the two questions you were mostly asking of people? Why was this decision made and what can we learn? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you brought up a great point around obituaries. Uh, I would read the obituary section and was frequently saying, I never knew that, or I wish I could ask them a question about that. And of course, the obvious answer is why wait? Whatever mm-hmm. you'd say at their funeral, say it now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very Southern thing uh, relative to your listeners and your wonderful podcast. Mm-hmm. And I think that I would just go sit down with people and say, tell me why you did that. And what choices were you considering? And was there consensus around this? Mm-hmm. How contentious were these conversations? And most importantly, if you had to do it all over again, what would you have done? And then the favorite, of course, is what would you tell your 21-year-old self? And those, Robert Caro, the great author who wrote the, the wonderful biography of LBJ, said, if you ask the right question, there's always more to the story. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the, the development of the Outer Banks is really just the sum of a lot of really interesting stories mm-hmm. that I think need to be shared and understood. Mm-hmm. Well, kudos, Clark Twitty, for honoring those visionaries. In fact, a couple of them. <laughs> have actually passed away just in the last few years. And mm-hmm. you just Bam. did the, the honoring in such a lovely way through this book. And the proceeds of the book will also honor the region as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. Uh, so when you write a book, number one, you don't probably look to make a lot of money. You probably do it because you're passionate about it first. And then because these books are about the lives of others, I thought the way to truly honor their legacy was to donate any proceeds from the book to local scholarships. So at one time, I was the chairman of the Outer Banks Community Foundation, which does local grants and local scholarships. Grants, particularly as we think about the impacts of tourism and the visitor economy on culture and on quality of life. But also, is there no better testament than education? There's the great quote that said, the only thing more expensive than education is ignorance. So it was very important to me to say, let their legacy be education. Wow. Is there anything else that you would like for our listeners to know, either about your experience in in writing the book or just about the Outer Banks in general? Yes. uh, Thank you for even the, the component. Um, I look forward to reading every young person's book out there. I hope every young person, if you're listening to me, if I can do it, so can you. So everyone has a book inside them, find yours and work hard on it and share it with others. I hope everybody comes to the Outer Banks with their family. And I hope the time you spend here is among the best memories in the garden of your life. I read a great quote today that said, friends are the flower and flowers in our life's journey. And I hope the Outer Banks is a flower in the memory of so many of our visitors And lastly, I'll say very briefly in 30 seconds or less, 
to your point about University of Tennessee, a lot of these destinations that are struggling and embracing this surge in tourism can find ready partners at the university level. Let those universities look for Mm. best practices and share research with these destinations as we all wrestle with too much of a good thing, potentially not being a good thing. So good. Well, guys, like we said, you can... uh, You can find this in our show notes, and you too should go visit the Outer Banks. We'd love to hear stories from you guys if you've been, and share some photos with us. But um, until next time, peace be with y'all.